All right, Daniel chapter 9, verse number 24, and we're going to read down to verse number 27, looking at the 70 weeks uh, once again. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. That's a sixfold plan right there. And it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with a flood and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's that last 70th week there. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you that you would just guide me as I bring forth this uh, sermon tonight. And help us, Lord, to understand this a little bit better and build, Lord, a foundation for our prophecy in, in the future so that we can... Um, just be solid in our positions, not only in regards to Israel, but also to the church, and we'll be able to teach others uh, how to truly have a proper view of prophecy. Lord, help us, I pray, to understand in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to move forward here. Uh, just some recap, number one, the 69 weeks, that's 483 years, were divided into two parts. In letter A, seven weeks, remember the 49 years uh, of Israel building. This included the time that Israel was building the temple and Jerusalem. In actuality, the time that went by was how long? Anybody remember? The actual literal years that passed? It's over 100, just a bit over 100. You remember? 108, 108 years. But that's not what we're counting here. We're counting the years that were actually, they were actually in, in progress building, and that equals up to be 49 years. Um, <clears throat> of course, this period ended uh, with the rebuilding of the walls and gates of Jerusalem with Nehemiah as the governor. Letter B, 62 weeks, that's 434 years, began when Jerusalem was finished construction and ended with the coming of the Messiah at his birth in 5 BC, give or take a year, amen? Somewhere around there, it's not that important anyways, but... Uh, it is good to know because it really does fit with prophecy and it does build your faith, doesn't it? And we did come to that uh, position because Herod, of course, died in 4 BC and his decision to kill the children two years old to newborn because he diligently inquired of the wise men what time the star appeared that led them. And so all those things, and we deduce these things to be approximately about 5 BC where Jesus Christ was born. Letter C, after the 69 weeks, that's 483 years, there is a period of time with an unknown duration where several things take place. And this is very much seen clearly here in this particular passage and many other passages in the scripture. There is an interval. Now, some people don't like that. They don't want an interval. They want it to go right into the 70th week. And that's where you get all kinds of weird positions like amillennialism, postmillennialism. 
things like that come out of not doing this properly. And I'm going to explain a little bit more about that today so you understand why that kind of thing takes place. So the, there's significant things that took place. Number one, the Messiah is crucified. The Messiah is crucified. It's mentioned in Daniel as after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. It doesn't say in the 70th week he got cut off. It says after the 69 weeks he gets cut off. And we know he was born in 5 BC. And of course the Lord just stopped the clock there and says, okay, let's see what Israel is going to do with this. And of course we know what they did. They rejected Christ. Uh, the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So number two, <clears throat> Israel rejects the Messiah and is set aside until the time of Gentiles is complete. And we see that in Luke 13, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. Amen. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't come to me as your Messiah. Of course, we also see in Romans 11, verse 23, and they also, if they abide not in still in unbelief, shall be graft in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert graft contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be graft into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. Amen. And so they, they are going to be brought back in, but they have rejected the Messiah when Jesus Christ was born and in his earthly ministry. <clears throat> we also know that Paul was beheaded in a Roman prison about two to three years before Jerusalem was destroyed, about 67 to 68 AD. This is very significant. Uh, he reached out to the Jews. Of course, whenever he went to a new city, the first place he went was to the synagogues. He started to reach out to his own people. They would persecute him. They would uh, chase him out, whatever. But then he would go and win the Gentiles. And so, but he never lost his heart for his own people. They rejected him time and time again. Acts 28 gives us the last time Paul tried to reach out to the Jewish leadership. And this is the last chapter of Acts. It says, in verse 17, And it came to pass that after three days Paul came, called the <clears throat> chief of the Jews together, and when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. <clears throat> of course, he's under house arrest at this time. Who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. But when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar. Not that I had aught to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you, because that for the hope of Israel <coughs> I am bound with this chain. Excuse me. <coughs> and they said unto him, 
We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, neither any of the brethren that came showed or spake any harm of thee. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> but we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. That's Christianity. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. I would have loved to have been there. And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, they departed. After that, Paul had spoken one word, well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophets unto our fathers, saying, Go unto this people and say, Hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is wax gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. Be it known there unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So the apostle Paul was under house arrest. Many people believe even after this in Acts 20, he was actually released for a time and went as far as Spain, uh, continuing the work. Uh, but then, of course, he was rearrested. But this time when he was rearrested, he wasn't put under house arrest. He was actually put into prison. And this is what would be the time that he would be killed. But he had a heart for his people. The Bible says in Romans 10:1, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. And so notice this is during the interval this is after Jesus Christ was caught up into heaven, uh, ascended, and he's, he's within the church age, the beginning of that church age, and he's reaching out to his people, and his people uh, rejected Christ. They rejected the Messiah. They would not turn. The year that he died was around 67, 68 AD, or AD, and that means there's only two years left, and all of Jerusalem will be destroyed. And so that's very significant because the Jews had rejected the Messiah. But in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, it says, For I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my de departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Amen? And those were his final words there in 2 Timothy. Now, number three, another important aspect of this interval was the church. The church, a mystery to the Old Testament, is chosen to bring the gospel to the world while Israel is in desolation. And so this is an important thing to consider here. I want to show you something in this chart. Um, uh, Old Testament, this is called the Mountain Peaks of Prophecy. And it's on the back of your worksheet as well, so you can take it home and look at it later. But notice the prophet looking from his perspective into the future. What he does not see 
is the valley of the church, which is in between those two mounds there. So whenever there's prophecy in the Old Testament, all he is seeing is, he's saying, okay, they can see the death of Christ, and they can see the return of Christ. But those things are like this close. There, there's no gap between them. And so you see that several times in Scripture where they're giving you Scripture, and you're saying, but that doesn't make sense, because there's thousands of years in between these two phrases, <laughs> you know? Like it talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust in the same sentence. But there's a thousand years between those two resurrections. Amen? And so the, Israel, the, the prophets didn't see these valleys. They didn't see the valley of, of uh, the church, nor did they see the valley of the millennial reign. All they saw was Jesus died. They see the, uh, if they were looking for it, they could see that he died. It, the return of Christ and the kingdom. That's all they could see. So it's like one thing after another. <laughs> and that's why many times if you don't study the Bible properly, what's going to happen is if you start looking at the truth like the Old Testament prophets did, you're going to be off kilter. You're going to have false doctrine. So what we have to do is we have to include the new revelation, which is the New Testament, and we have to place in between these, these points of reference what exactly God has put in there that was kept a mystery to the Old Testament. Amen? So if we don't do that. I've heard people, just recently I had someone tell me, oh yeah, this is what I think. And I said, man, you are off. And it caused him to think wrong about the kingdom and when the king, in fact, they believe we're now in the kingdom because they couldn't see the difference between the 69th week and the 70th. They couldn't see the gap. They couldn't see the church age. See, you've got to interpret Old Testament scripture in light of what you've learned <coughs> in the New Testament. Even the prophets, the Bible says, inquired or they searched diligently to look into. They wanted, they desired to know, but they couldn't because the revelation wasn't given yet. Amen? And so it's very important we understand that. All right, so letter A, Jews would be joined with Gentiles in one body, the church. This the Old Testament didn't see. They didn't see how the Gentiles would be brought together with the Jews and the Lord would look at them as one body. They always looked at themselves separately because they looked at themselves nationally. There's national boundaries. There will never not be national boundaries, you know? And so they're always looking at themselves as a nation. But of course, if the nation is set aside and their purpose is set aside for a time because of desolation, and the Lord chooses another entity to do this, well, that doesn't have national boundaries, well, then it doesn't have to be separated. In fact, in Christ, that middle wall of partition has been removed between the Jew and the Gentile. And it's interesting because those Jews that get saved now and be a part of the church, they lose their identification as a national Jew because now they become part of the bride of Christ. It's different, amen? They're no longer identifying with the Jewish faith. They, they are now going to be raptured with the church, amen? And so it's very important we see those differentiations in the scripture. Uh, I'm going to read this to you in Ephesians chapter 2 to chapter 3. It says in verse 19, Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, 
Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So we become this spiritual temple that the Lord lives through, not a physical one in Israel, but we are a spiritual temple. For it says, For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That was hid. They didn't understand that part in the Old Testament. But now it's been revealed to us, the holy apostles and the prophets. So the church was invisible to the Old Testament prophets. They didn't see the interval between the 69th and 70th week other than what I've shown you in Daniel. To me, it's just a matter of mathematics to understand that if it says after the 69th, it's not talking about before the 69th ends. It's after it. And then, of course, if it goes all the way up to the Antichrist and then the 70th week begins, that means there must be an interval. They just didn't know how long it was going to be. <laughs> could have been a week, could have been a year. What's it going to be? They didn't understand it was going to be thousands of years between the 69th and 70th week, uh, this interval. And so because of this missing valley of the church, the scripture in the Old Testament many times jumps from one point in time to another, skipping large portions of time. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. Uh, letter B, the disciples were unsure of the timing on Christ's kingdom because they were confused. So Jesus Christ uh, was ministering in, in his uh, earthly ministry. And then when he ascended up into heaven, the disciples were confused because they're thinking the next thing that needs to take place is the kingdom. Why isn't the kingdom coming, you know? And that's why in Acts 1 verse 6 it says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And so really he's saying, the kingdom is not something that you need to be concerned about right now. Right now your total emphasis has to be on being a witness to the world. And that's the job of the church. Amen? And so he just pulled that right out of their hands. and said, stop talking about the kingdom it's time for you to go reach souls with the gospel. And that's called the church age. Amen? And so even the disciples didn't understand it by the time Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven. So they would receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Well, we know the disciples beforehand. Jesus breathed on them in John chapter 20, and they received the Holy Ghost. But they weren't empowered at that time. They were indwelt. But when the, Holy, when the Pentecost came... And the Holy Ghost came, it came to empower the church. That we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit isn't, things, isn't something that happens all the time. It was a one-time event. It was one time where the church was placed into Christ, in placed in by the Spirit, and empowered to do the work of God. It's not where every time we have a prayer time, there's another baptism, or let's have an upper room experience and have another baptism. Amen. After that day of baptism of the Holy Spirit, our only responsibility is to be filled with the Spirit, not baptized. You don't, you don't hear them talking about seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit of God. That was just Pentecostal churches coming up to the 19, uh, 1900s. And that, that was not the right question. They just said, how can we be filled with the Spirit? And that would have been through surrender to the Scripture. Amen? Then they could have been filled. But they were looking for some kind of a supernatural fire from heaven. And that's why it always had to do with fire, the baptism of fire. And they would call the baptism of fire something good. In the scripture, baptism of fire is judgment. <laughs> and so, not too bright that way. Anyways, number two. We'll move on quickly. The destruction of Jerusalem. We'll look at verse number 26 once again in Daniel. It says, And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be of the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So a notable event mentioned in Daniel was the fact that Jerusalem would be destroyed again, and God's people would be scattered one more time throughout the whole earth. I'm going to give you a little chart that I put together years ago. Uh, Israel's dispersions, there was three of them. Egypt, they were dispersed there. Babylon, they were dispersed there. And also, finally in AD 70, dispersed for the last time. And they were delivered from Egypt under Joshua. They were delivered from Babylon under Ezra. And now they'll be delivered from from this last dispersion and brought back under Jesus Christ forever at the end of the 70th week. So three dispersions, three deliverances. Amen. And so that's, that's the history of Israel right there. And so, uh, letter A, this is the first of five wars we see in end time prophecy. So AD 70, this is very much a cornerstone war. We need to understand, and that's why I've spent time on that tonight. And I'm going to show you a chart that I also created, all right? (laughs) This is more simple. And so, five wars. The first one, destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, that is right after Christ ascended and the the Apostle Paul was beheaded two years after that. That's what happened. The second war, you'll find in Psalm 83. This is very interesting because the Psalm 83 war is talking about the Middle Eastern nations wanting to destroy Israel. So the surrounding nations around Israel are looking to blot them out. It's kind of what's going on right now. But supposedly, according to Psalm 83, there's going to be a war that is, they are all going to come against Israel, and of course they'll fail again. Some people think maybe that was a six-day war. And that was a fulfillment of that. Uh, But it doesn't quite fit all of the uh, prophecy there in, in Psalm 83. But it's close. Number three is Gog and Magog. This you'll see in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And this will happen before the tribulation, or right after the tribulation starts, within the first three and a half years. And that's going to be a huge army coming up against Israel. And of course, they'll be destroyed. (coughs) The Lord will take them down. 
The Bible says it'll take them seven years to clean up the mess. And they'll actually, actually in Ezekiel, it talks about how that they will go later on and find bodies. And when they find these bodies, they'll put a flag by them until they go back and, and bury them. And it even tells you where they're going to bury them, you know. So that's why I know Gog and Magog, this battle, isn't talking about the final rebellion. Because the final rebellion, after that, that earth's going to be destroyed. But it talks about a seven-year period, and they're going to be burning the weapons from that war for the next seven years. And it's going to provide fuel for them. That's how many weapons are going to be brought into Israel through that war. They're just, of course, the Lord's going to destroy them. Their weapons can just be lying there. <laughs> All right? So, interesting. And so, go to Ezekiel 38, 39 to get that. And then Armageddon, of course, that takes place at the end of the tribulation, where all the nations of the earth come against Jerusalem. And we know Gog and Magog isn't that war because Gog and Magog is very specific to certain nations that are coming against Israel. Armageddon is the whole earth coming against Israel. And that, of course, is when Jesus Christ returns and he destroys those armies and the blood will be to the bridle of the horse in the, in the valley of uh, Megiddo. And it was interesting. We were able to go up top there. I should have brought some pictures of that. Uh, maybe a little later, um, up in where the city of Megiddo and looked down into that valley, folks, I saw the battlefield. <laughs> if you go there, you can see it. And, and, they, and even Napoleon said, this is the most perfect battlefield on the whole planet. It is just a perfect battlefield. It's just a huge, right? Between Mark, Mount Carmel is there, uh, Megiddo is there, and you can just look down and see it all. It's just amazing. And so uh, that's Armageddon, and then, of course, Jesus Christ will come, uh, begin the millennial kingdom, and then at the end of that kingdom, the devil will be loosed from the bottomless pit, deceive the kings one more time, and the nations will rise up once again, trying to destroy Christ in Jerusalem, and the Lord will finally deal with it once and for all. So that's the fifth battle, all right? So the first one, prophetically in the last days, is this destruction of Jerusalem, and it's very important to understand that because there's doctrine tied to it as well. And so, um, Matthew 24, verse 5, says this, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. <laughs> Amen. And so we know that Jerusalem, uh, wars follow Jerusalem. And, and Israel, uh, and they've just been going through it ever since, uh, even up to the First World War, Second World War, and on and on you go. So the Lord is warning the Jews of those that claim Messiahship in this passage. He says, they'll come and they'll say, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one, and there'll be wars. And of course, we know in the Old Testament, it all, what always got them was, They'd have a prophet or somebody come along and says, oh no, peace, 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 peace. And what he's saying is, no, 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 wars and rumors of wars. And so this peace message that this false Christ is going to bring you is not a real message. And he was trying to keep them from being deceived by this false Messiah. And of course, that brings you right up to the tribulation of the 70th week because the Antichrist is going to come in saying, peace, peace, peace. And if they would just listen to Jesus, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have signed that covenant, but they will. 
So the cessation of wars is not proof of Christ. He is saying there will be wars and rumors of wars. So stopping the wars isn't a proof that you're Messiah. <laughs> Amen? So he's coming in saying, oh, I'm going to stop. Oh, look, I'm bringing peace. That's not what Jesus said. He says, I'm not coming in on a peace, peace platform. In fact, when he comes, there's, there's going to be the greatest war that's ever been seen when Jesus Christ returns. We should not turn to someone that calls out for peace when wars will be fought in the last days. Peace will only come after Christ comes and defeats the armies of the world, not in empty promises. Amen? It won't just be saying, oh, I'll, uh, just believe me, I'll tell you. No, no. He won't be saying anything like that. He's going to break through the sky, out of his mouth will come a sword, and the armies will be destroyed. And then he'll say, peace. <laughs> Amen? After the, after the war is done, but not before. All right? And so... Uh, these five wars, we looked at them uh, already. Um, Art Sadler, Sound of Trumpet, uh, he just wrote this about the uh, Ezekiel 38, the, the uh, Gog and Magog. It says, the war of Ezekiel 38 and 39 has an entirely different set of enemies than that will face Israel in the war that will follow shortly after the war of Psalm 83. The, the war of Psalm 83 takes place prior to the tribulation period it is described in Scripture as taking place. And so he's saying Psalm 83 is not the Ezekiel War. It's not the, the war of Gog and Magog. And then there's the war of Gog and Magog. There's the war of Armageddon. And then the final rebellion. Letter B. An army was prophesied to come to destroy Jerusalem and its temple. This occurred in A.D. 70. Shall come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. And Jesus prophesied of this, but they wouldn't listen. Of course, they didn't listen to him because they didn't want him as their Messiah. Uh, number one, Jesus warned Israel of this desolation. In Matthew 23, verse 36, he says, Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as her hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And there he's referring to his second coming. And so he's saying there's, there's desolation coming, and then you won't see me until you're willing to accept me as your Messiah. Desolate means solitary, lonely, uninhabited. That's what it was going to be like. Luke 21, this is a very important passage. This we call the temple discourse. Remember when Jesus was talking about the temple, how he could destroy, it would be destroyed in three days, he'd raise it up again. It says, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains and let them which are in the midst of it depart out and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people." 
and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. We're living in pretty exciting times to know that Israel is actually back in Jerusalem, but they're not there in full force. <laughs> they're still underneath Gentile dominion. They don't have their sovereignty yet. Amen. In fact, they got uh, the enemy living right within their boundaries, and they can never seem to get control of their own country. The Lord's advice in this battle was to flee because the judgment had already been determined. You won't win this one, he's saying, just like with Jeremiah telling Zedekiah, you know, you're not going to win this, submit. <clears throat> oh, no, no, we're going to win. No, you won't. Jesus said the same thing. Best thing you can do is flee. And in fact, a lot of the Christians that were there at that time did flee. They went to a different city because they understood what Jesus said. And so a lot of them escaped this destruction. But they besieged the city during a time of the unleavened bread. That's a time where all the Jews came back to Jerusalem. And so they caught them there. They besieged Jerusalem. And they basically starved them out. <laughs> Over a million Jews died as they starved them out. They were eating their own children. That's how bad it was in AD 70. But there were some that, that left. We'll talk about that a little later. Number two, Jerusalem, its temple and its people would be left in desolation. Desolations to stun, to be destitute, destroyed, to lie or make waste, to wonder. And it says, unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Determined means to point sharply or to wound, to be alert, to decide. Uh, to decree, to determine, to move. And so basically these desolations are pointedly given to Israel. It's going to be there. It's determined so you are not going to beat this thing. You will be destroyed. You will be desolate. There was no hope for a change of this judgment. It is interesting that we already know that Israel will be judged due to the rejection of Christ in Daniel. In Daniel, I would think, okay, Jesus Christ, if he would have said it, you're getting close. I understand. But way back in Daniel, they already knew from the scripture that they would be laid desolate in AD 70. And of course they were. Number three, Jesus Christ's return became imminent since the war of AD 70. Now I wanted to point this out to you because it's important. Now the word imminent isn't necessarily in scripture, but this is what it means. It means shooting over or hanging over, impending, threatening, appearing as if about to fall on, okay? So <clears throat> imminent means that it's like it's hanging over you and it could fall anytime. That's what imminency is. Now, I just read to you Luke 21, and we went over how that uh, they were gonna be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And then it's interesting because here we have one of, these, one of these perspectives. So he's talking about AD 70, looking at that. And what does he do? He jumps ahead. What does he jump to? And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming to, on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. 
And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So what you see there again in this passage is, because he's talking about the temple, he's talking to the Jews, he sees A.D. 70 and then jumps ahead to the 70th week. Now we know that stuff hasn't happened yet, (laughs) amen? So it hasn't come yet. 70th week hasn't started. So he jumped past the whole church age in this passage, the whole interval. Then it says this, and when these things begin to, to pass, to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So what things? Well, if you're looking at the passage in the context, you're going back to the first thing he talked about. What was the first thing he talked about? The destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So what he's saying is, when these things begin to come to pass, look up for your redemption draweth nigh. And that's why since that time, Christians have been looking up, waiting for the imminent return of Christ. You see, that's important because uh, what that does, I'll move on here. Uh, We'll get to that. So the redemption draweth nigh. What is the redemption? Well, the redemption is the day of Christ's return. It's the day that you're going to be raptured up. It's the resurrection. Romans 8.23, it says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Amen? So you know you are redeemed spiritually. You're being redeemed, and you will be redeemed. (laughs) You know you are saved. You're being saved, and you will be saved. Amen? So redemption has to do with, of course, when you receive Christ, you're redeemed, but it also has to do with the spirit, the soul, and ultimately the body at the resurrection. And that is the completion of the redemption. Amen? So when he says, look up for your redemption, draw nigh, he's talking about the day where we'll be caught up into glory. And that is imminent. That is hanging over us. And that's been hanging over us since... AD 70, amen? So mid-trib rapture, I'm sorry, I don't believe it. I can't believe it, amen? Because if there was a mid-trib rapture, I could point you to the day. I could. Because I know when the Antichrist signs that covenant, I just have to count down seven years till Jesus Christ returns, amen? I mean, it's all clocked out in the scripture. Ephesians 4.30 says, And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Amen? That's why we talk about the adoption, how that we already have the spirit of adoption, but then we also are looking for the redemption of the body. So the, the adoption papers have been signed. I'm already waiting for my father to pick me up in the orphanage, and one day he's going to come and pick me up. <laughs> and it's guaranteed because the papers are signed. You understand, all right? So, letter B, number four, this passage is a strong argument for the pre-tribulation rapture. Other rapture positions have no imminency for Christ's return. No imminency. In fact, I've talked to people with mid-trib positions, post-trib, and I says, what do you believe about imminency? They say, we don't. (laughs) Well, I guess I believe in imminency like we're all going to die. 
<laughs> but that's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about imminency that, that's hanging over us is death. What's hanging over us is not just death, even though it is, but what's hanging over us every day, every minute of the day, is the return of Christ. Amen? That's imminency. All right? Letter B, the Antichrist will come from the people that destroyed Jerusalem. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So the Antichrist, whoever his people are, they're the ones that destroyed the temple in AD 70. And he's going to come out of those people, the Bible says. Well, you say, I knew that. He comes out of Rome. And we knew that. But I'm going to give you some more insight here. Number one, the little horn, Antichrist, will pluck up three of the ten horns, the kings, ruling the dreadful beast, the revived Roman Empire. This is pretty well known. We know the Antichrist is coming out of the Roman, the revived Roman Empire. I'm not going to read that to you because we've done it before. Number two, the little horn, Antichrist, will rise up out of one of the four horns, the four divisions of the he-goat, the Grecian Empire. And we see that in Daniel 8, verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. We see that once again in verse 21. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, the four generals, Four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, the latter time, it says, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up. Amen. So we know this, the Antichrist coming out of the three horns in the revived Roman Empire talking about his political rise, but now we're also talking about the four divisions of the Grecian Empire, which is talking about his, um, what was the word I'm looking for? His, uh, <laughs> it'll come to me. My brain is not working right. Um, anyways, it'll come to me. One, one of the, it's not the political, but it's the background, the, the ancestry of the Antichrist. So we have the political coming out of the ten horns. We've got the ancestry coming out of the four horns because it's talking about the four divisions of the, of the world, the empire, all right? So number three, the vision was concerning the little horn and it would occur at the time of the end, of the end. Now the end, a lot of people say, oh no, Daniel chapter eight is talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. He came up there you know, pre-Christ, and he was a real bad guy. He was, and he was actually a type of the Antichrist, but the little horn of Daniel is always the Antichrist. It's always the Antichrist. Even though the, there's been many people that have been types of the Antichrist, just like sometimes you have types of Christ, <laughs> amen? And that Antiochus was a type of the Antichrist. In fact, he had the same heart that the Antichrist had, but his end would be different, you see, and that's why it's, you got to pay attention to what it says about these visions. It says the time of the end. So before Christ re was born, that's never been referred to as the time of the end. And in fact, even in Christ's 
earthly ministry, it's still not the time of the end. In fact, the last days only began with the day of Pentecost and thereon uh, till, till the 70th week. That's the last stage of the highway of prophecy, you see. So Antiochus was not in the end, <laughs> okay? And so there's other things that there as well. So, and it says in Acts, uh, Daniel 8, 19, And he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be the last of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. So the last end of the indignation. That's talking about the 70th week of Daniel. That's talking about Jacob's trouble. That's talking about that, that terrible time that's coming in the future. So number four, most of the army that destroyed Jerusalem under the leadership of Titus were not Italian, but were from the east stationed in Syria. Interesting. They said, this is Titus, by the way, his bust. Now, Titus was actually the, the uh, son of uh, Vasparian. Now, he was the one that actually went and fought the battle. But what happened is, as he was taking over Israel, Nero committed suicide. And so this general, his father, got caught up in this leadership struggle and actually went to Rome, and they actually made him the next emperor. <laughs> so he, the first thing he did is appoint his son Titus to take over the battle. And you know where that point was? Right when they got to the gates of Jerusalem. So he left, Titus came, and Titus had an army, and his men were Syrian-based. They were Middle Eastern people. These were the people that worshipped the sun and the moon and so forth. In fact, later on, they were the same people that would worship Allah, the moon god. So they weren't Italian. And in fact... They, they dressed in the Roman soldier uniforms. They had all the same weapons. They, were, they belonged to the Roman army, and they were led by Roman generals and so forth. But the men that were actually destroyed Jerusalem were not Italian. They said only one out of 11 soldiers was Italian at, when Jerusalem was destroyed. That's pretty interesting when it says the people of the prince that shall come. And so... Um, I'll read to you a quote here. To the Roman public, the army of 69-70 AD probably seemed little different than its counterpart under Julius Caesar. The legionnaires wore familiar equipment and marched behind the silver aquila, their legions bearing names and titles which reflected their origins and the exploits of earlier days. But in reality, much had changed. What had been an army of Italians was increasingly becoming an army of provincials owing no particular allegiance to or common bond with the Senate of Rome. Increasingly, they began to identify their interests with those of the provinces of which they stationed. By AD 69, Gallica III, like other legions long stationed in the east, contained a very high proportion of men born in the eastern provinces. And that started way back in AD 63. It was always that transition was taking place where now the soldiers were no longer Italian. <laughs> they were actually from Syria, you know. And that's interesting because the armies, 
so only 1% of the Roman army was actually Italian by AD 70. That's the percentage, 1%. There was such animosity towards the Jews by these soldiers. Titus, when he actually finally got into Jerusalem, he wanted to save the temple. In fact, he says, let's not destroy it. But you know, his soldiers hated the Jews so much, they burned it down. (laughs) No allegiance to Rome. These men were driven by hatred for the Jews, you see. And those are the ones that were there. These armies, they worshiped the sun, the moon, and were ancestors of those that would later worship the moon god Allah. And you remember, there was no Islam at this point. Islam only came later on in history with Muhammad. But this is those people that had multiple gods, and they worshiped these multiple gods. And it was only through Muhammad that he actually directed them to one god, one of their pluralistic gods, and he chose Allah, which was the moon god, and that's why Islam is that half moon sign on their flag, you see. So the greatest part of the Roman garrison was raised out of Syria, and being thus related to the Syrian part, they were ready to assist it. And so even back, uh, way back in the time of Paul, some of the soldiers in Jerusalem were already Syrian. And so they already had a hatred for the Jews at that point. So it was different. They weren't Italian like you see in all the movies. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so letter D, there is a possibility, I'm going to leave that in a possibility ballpark here, that the Antichrist will come from the Syrian division of what was the Grecian Empire and possibly of Eastern descent, according to what it says here in the scripture. So will he just be a true blue Italian Roman? (laughs) Maybe not. He could be from the Eastern countries. And so that's an interesting prospect, especially considering what happened with Islam after the fact and how it's taking over the world. Amen? So something to think about, but I'm not going to say dogmatically. <laughs> I can't, all right? But it is, a, a, it is an interesting thought. So I just wanted to give you a little more insight here into this. Uh, I had a lot of history I was going to get into. But I thought, oh, you know, I like history, but everybody doesn't. So I'm going to maybe leave all of that. But one interesting thing is I want to point out is that when there was a remnant of people that, that actually escaped Jerusalem, and they went to this place that's called Masada. You ever heard about that? When we went to Israel, we went up to Masada. And they had a, um, a sky thing. What do you call those things? Um, cable car. They had a cable car that brought you up to the top. Or you could walk it if you wanted to. A couple of our guys did. It took them probably 45 minutes to walk up. And, um, and I had pictures. And so you're up there. It's, a, it's basically a fortress built on, built on top of a mountain. So the Roman soldiers wanted to destroy them, but it took them a very long time. In fact, they had to build a ramp up the mountain to get to the walls. And there was no other way they could get up. And so when you look down, even to this day, when you look down from the walls of Masada, you can see exactly where the Roman garrisons were camped. Perfect squares. And that's where they were waiting. And they would just keep building and building until finally... They got up to the wall and just took it over, you know. And so that was the final hold of these people in Jerusalem. The, 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 uh, the zealots were the ones that 
that got into that place and held it for quite a while. But they were all ultimately destroyed. 